Bible Interact is a group of Bible scholars and biblical archaeologists who promote the Hebraic nature of Scripture and view the two Testaments as one unified message. They explain how they use a first-century approach to searching the Scriptures, and they share their methods and discoveries for discussion and dialogue. They invite your comments and participation on BibleInteract.tv, where you can also find more teachings, self-study quizzes, webinars, and interviews. Greetings and welcome to Bible Interact Act Presents. I am Dr. Ann Davis with Bible Interact. Last week, we were talking about the historical background of the book of Isaiah. Now, Isaiah is not, does not take place in just one historical period of time. It covers three periods of history. It has three slightly different uh, types of language in these three parts. And the messages are different, depending on the historical period of time. There's some discussion as to whether there was one Isaiah or three Isaiahs. My take on it is that it doesn't matter. What matters is the message. And what I'd like to do now is I'm going to just review very briefly the historical background so that we can anchor ourselves in the message, and then I want to spend the rest of the time on the message of Isaiah in chapters 1 through 39, which is that first period of historical time. Isaiah was writing from Jerusalem. The Assyrians had emerged as a very powerful empire in what we call Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia means the land between the two rivers. The two rivers were the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, and today that is where Iraq is located. That was one of two power centers in the ancient world because of the richness of the land due to the water from these two rivers. And we see one empire rising and becoming very powerful, and then another empire coming in and conquering and becoming powerful, and then another empire coming in and becoming powerful. The Assyrians had come in and conquered the Chaldeans and had themselves become a very powerful empire in this area called Mesopotamia, the land between the two rivers. As Assyria grew in power and strength, it began to expand, and it conquered areas around it and expanded into what is today Turkey, and then it turned south and was headed toward Israel. It wasn't that Israel was important. Israel was not important. It's just that Israel was in the way, because there was another power center in the ancient world, which was Egypt. Egypt was powerful because of the Nile River. So it also had very rich, fertile land. And it became a, a very strong um, power. So you have the two power centers, one in, in what is Iraq today, the other in, in Egypt. Between them was the Great Arabian Desert, you can't pass through the Great Arabian Desert, I guess, unless you're a Bedouin. So the trade route made an arc so that it came around and passed down on the shore of the Mediterranean Sea. That's called, by the way, the Fertile Crescent. That It, it forms a crescent shape, and the, the trade route would come from 
Mesopotamia, curving around and then south along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea and into Egypt. Israel was right smack in the way. So Israel was was conquered by either the power center in the north or the power center in the south. They kind of went back and forth between them. There was a period of time when Israel was able to be independent, but for much of the history of ancient Israel, they were controlled by one power center or the other. Now, at the time that Isaiah was writing, the Assyrians were getting stronger and stronger. They were conquering, and they their army was headed toward Egypt. It was approaching Israel. The language, now we're going to turn to, to the language of Isaiah, the message of Isaiah. Isaiah uses language that was very characteristic of the ancient world. It's very foreign to us today. So we have to take ourselves out of our modern Western world and transport ourselves back to the ancient Near East. The language of the ancient Near East was very different, so we're going to have to spend a little bit of time talking about that. I call it the language of wrath and judgment. The language is very harsh. It's, it's very hard. If, if you don't do this, I'm going to, these terrible things are going to happen. We tend to think that the God of the New Testament is a God of grace, and the God of the Old Testament is this God of wrath and judgment, and maybe they, they, they almost sound like two different gods. You know, there's been a struggle about, you know, whether they, maybe they are two different gods. Of course they're not, but uh, because the language is so different. And in the Old Testament, we get this language of wrath and judgment. The purpose of the language of wrath and judgment is a wake-up call. It's, it's using this harsh, langu- harsh language to say, you're too complacent. You're too comfortable in the ways of the world. Now, it's very important for us to understand that this language is not only for ancient Israel, it's also for us today. We just have to understand the nature of the language, and then we can pl- apply it to us today. So I'm going to start applying it to, to you and to me. This harsh language is, is, a, is it's the wake-up call. It says, stop walking in the ways of the world. You're too comfortable with your nice home, and you have a two-car garage. Now I see houses being built with three garages, for heaven's sakes. And, and you get a new car every so often. And, and you, you know, you, you're going to send your kids to good colleges. You're, and you're too complacent. You're too centered in the world and in worldly material things and things that are important to the world. The world has a way of lulling us into a kind of sleep. And this is what the language of wrath and judgment is, is going to do. It's going to knock you between the eyeballs and get you to wake up and realize that you've become too comfortable in the ways of the world. That's the purpose of the language of wrath and judgment. And and we have to understand the purpose. It isn't just that, you know, if Israel doesn't you know, do good things and be good, God's going to throw them out. That's not what it is at all. It's, it's, it's a loving form of instruction to get us to repent. Now, repent is a key word, and let me stop there for just a minute. Repent means to change. It isn't enough to say, I'm sorry. It isn't enough. We have to be so sorry that we are willing to humble ourselves and say, 
I'm not going to do that again. I'm going to become a different person. A different person who isn't going to do that again. And of course, we're growing to be more and more Christ-like if we follow this, this pattern in our lives. This repenting desire to change when we do something that is worldly and, you know, and and not only does the language of judgment give us wake-up calls, but sometimes we scratch our knees and it gives us wake-up calls also. So the purpose of the language of wrath and judgment is a form of loving instruction to, to get us to, to, to shake us out of our, our comfort zone and to get us to, uh, to turn to God. It, it's, it's an uncomfortable thing to change. It's very comfortable to stay with what you are and what you know. It's uncomfortable to change. So the language of wrath and judgment has to take you out of your comfort zone into an uncomfortable area that is going to encourage you to change and to become more Christ-like. Now, I'm going to give you an example of this language of, of wrath and judgment. I'm going to be reading from Isaiah chapter 1. And if you have your Bibles, you can get your Bibles and turn to chapter 1 of Isaiah. I'm going to start in verse 2. Now, Isaiah is writing in Hebrew poetic form. Hebrew poetry does not rhyme. It has rhythm. And the purpose of the rhythm is to evoke emotion. God is is, is stirring up emotion in us and, and... and wanting us to to listen, 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 you know, don't don't just say okay, okay, yes, but really, really listen in your heart. So I'm going to read it with that emotional rhythm, starting in verse two. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. And I think that's the way the people of ancient Israel would have heard it. God is in the heavens, and he's calling as a witness the heavens and the earth. And the Lord speaks. Oof. Are you ready? It isn't going to be easy. And then it goes on. Sons I have heard and brought up, but they have revolted against me. Now remember that this language is not only for the children of Israel, it is for us today also. What we need to do is, you you need to use an online interlinear Bible, or some reference material if you have it, to look up key words. How do you know what the key words are? Let your curiosity lead you to the key words. You have the gift of the Holy Spirit in you, if you have faith in God's Son, Yeshua, and that will guide you to be curious. Let yourself be curious. What have we got here? Sons I have reared and brought up. Why are there two words? Why is it reared and brought up? Don't they mean the same thing? Let's take a look at them in Hebrew. Those of you who know a little bit of Hebrew know the word gadol. Gadol means big. That's all it means. It means big, gadol. And that is the word that's being used here. So what it means is that I have made my sons great. They're big in my eyes. They're big in the eyes of the world. I have made them great. That's really what it's saying here. But it's saying it in this wonderful artistic language. I have made my sons great. And I have brought them up is is a word that means um, to, to, 
to raise them up or to be exalted. So what we have here, let me read it the way I think it should have been, <laughs> should have been translated. Sons I have made great and exalted. That applies to you. If you belong to God, you are a child of God, a son of God, and God has made you great and exalted you. But, the little word but is going to give a contrast. Contrast is all over scripture, and it, it contrasts, it compares the way of the world with the way of God. So God has made you great and exalted you, but they have revolted against me. Now we have a tendency to think of revolting means you have to be really, really, really bad. Wrong. It simply means that they, the children of Israel, and we are sinners. We don't walk in God's ways all the time. I don't know about you, but I'm not perfect. So this applies to me too. And uh, sons I have made great and exalted, but they, they, they're sinners. They, they, they walk in other ways than, the, than my way. That's what it means. Now, what follows is visual imagery, and I want you to get some real good pictures here. Let me read it, and then I'll go back, and we'll, we'll work on the visual imagery. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know my people do not understand. All right, let's start with the ox. We've got a dumb ox. It doesn't even know how to pull a plow in a straight line, so it has to have a yoke around it. How does the ox know its master, its owner? Well, because the owner, you know, yokes it. <laughs> That's the way it knows its owner, because the owner, you know, has to, you know, have the reins around it to, to make sure that it, it goes the way it's supposed to go. And then we get a donkey knows its master's manger. Well, what's in the manger? Food. A donkey only goes with his master because he gets fed. What about your cats and your dogs? You know, they're there because you feed them. You think they love you the way you love them. But really, it's all about food. It's all about gratification. And by the way, the way we treat God is, is, like, a, is like a donkey. You know, when we need help, we, oh, I pray to God, I need help. Are we praying to God at all times, in all instances, whether good or whether bad? No, we're like donkeys. We go when, there's, when we need food. And, and, and this is what we're like. And then it goes on. Israel does not know. My people do not understand. The, I, I, the English doesn't capture it. The, the, uh, my, let's see. My, my uh, Israel does not know is head knowledge. It's, it's the Hebrew yada. It's simply to know. That's all it is. Just to know. It means head knowledge. My people do not understand. It's a different Hebrew word. Uh, the word is bin, which means um, discerning between what is right and what is wrong, between what is good and what is evil. So you have to have knowledge in your head first, and then you have to use that knowledge. You, you, you have to put it into action, and that's what's happening here. Now, what follows next is extreme exaggeration, and this is again the language of the ancient world trying to hit us between the eyeballs. It's extreme exaggeration. Now there is a fancy technical word for this extreme exaggeration which I will give you and then you can promptly forget it. The word is hyperbole. It simply means not just exaggeration, but extreme exaggeration. And this is what we're going to get, so, so listen to it. 
Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evil doers, sons who act corruptly, they have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from him. This is extreme exaggeration. Now, God could have said, you are sinners. Walk in my ways. You're sinners. Bad things are going to happen unless you walk in my ways. That's what he could have said. But he didn't say it that way. He said it with this ancient language of wrath and judgment that uses extreme exaggeration. Let me read it one more time, and this time I want you to listen to the message. You ready? Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from him. That applies to you too. We're all sinners. And the language is very harsh language for the purpose of uh, getting us, you know, a wake-up call, getting us to, to turn away from the ways of the world. We all walk in ways of the world. To turn away from the ways of the world to the ways of God. This is the language of wrath and judgment. And don't forget we're just, uh, that the purpose of the language of wrath and judgment is to, is to encourage people to turn away from the world to God. Now, we sometimes use an image of a stick in relation to the language of, of wrath and judgment. Because, you know, carry a big stick, walk them, walk them when they're not walking right. Carry the big stick. This does not have to be corporal punishment. It is loving instruction. That's what it is. And God only sees the heart. And we need to operate this loving instruction um, which is, is punishment. It's a form of punishment, but we do it as loving instruction. Now, let me give you an example. Let's say you have a teenager. Teenagers are very prone to walking in the ways of the world. You know, they want to be free from all restraints, so what they do is they just walk into the mouth of the lion, you know. You're not really free unless you submit yourself to God. That's when you're truly free, which is irony. <laughs> you think you're free and you know you have no rules and then you're going to be clobbered by the world where if you follow the rules of God that's when you're free from the world and in uh, in God's arms so the teenager has done something bad and you want to give the teenager some loving instruction so you say son I am taking away your privilege to drive the family car for one month. Whoa! That is tough punishment for a teenager. So the stick doesn't necessarily have to mean a literal stick. It's a metaphor for loving correction, which is a form of instruction. Now what I want to do is I, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about this loving instruction. The children of Israel before the coming of Christ had two methods of instruction that God had given them. Certainly, he gave them his law. His Torah, which came directly from God, and then the prophets and the writings are a form of commentary on the Torah. So God gave the children of Israel his instruction through the law. But there was another form of instruction also. You remember you have the head knowledge? 
and that isn't enough, you have to put it into action. Well, the law, having the law in your head is not enough. You've got to learn to walk in the ways of the law. It isn't enough just to know the law. Just knowing the law isn't going to have you walk in the ways of the law. So God uses another form of instruction called testing. Now, sometimes people tell me, um, God tested me. You know, something bad happened to them, and they say, God tested me. But these people don't really understand the concept of testing. Testing is a form of loving instruction. Now, I am a visual person, so I see God's hand of protection over me. As I'm talking, I've kind of cut my hand over here. And and God places his hand of protection over me as long as I walk in his ways. Now, fortunately, God only sees the heart. So my heart has to desire to walk in his ways, and that hand of protection is over me, and it protects me from the, the world that wants to come in and clobber me. If I turn away from God and walk in the ways of the world, my visual image sees God's hand of protection being lifted I am now exposed to the world. And when I walk in the ways of the world, I am going to bring upon myself the consequences of my worldly actions. God doesn't do bad things to me. He lifts his hand of protection and allows me to fall on my knees and get scraped. And hopefully I say, Oh, Lord, I don't want to ever do that again. Help me learn how not to do that again so that I can I can be more godly in, in, in my life. This is what testing is all about. Testing is God allowing us to take upon ourselves worldly consequences so that we will learn to turn to him. Now, the story of testing is in the Exodus account. And you remember that the children of Israel escaped from bondage in Egypt, the Red Sea parted, and God plunked them into a wilderness. There they wandered for three days without water. I am told that that is the period of time that if we are without water for three days, we will die. So the children of Israel were on the point of death. Now, it was Moses who cried out to the Lord. The Lord showed Moses a tree. Moses threw the tree into the water, and it became sweet, so the people were able to drink. But then, and, and that it, the word testing is used with that account. But then, uh, God tested his people, and he did it with the manna. Behold, says God, I will rain bread from heaven that I may test them, whether or not they will walk in my instruction. So this is the process of testing that is the second way that God instructed his children, uh, the, the children of Israel. Now today, we also have the law. We also have testing, but we have a third method of instruction, which is the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit guides us to walk in the ways of the law. It, you know, it isn't enough just to put it in your head. You have to be able to walk in the ways of the law, and the Holy Spirit guides us to do that. So, I've been working on the language of wrath and judgment that is very characteristic of Isaiah. So when you go into Isaiah, you will be reading the language of wrath and judgment, and you need to learn that it is characteristic of the ancient world as a wake-up call to get people to turn to him. I'm going to end now with Isaiah chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, because after this really tough language of wrath and judgment, God turns and, and gives clear instruction. He said, you know, I've clobbered you through between the eyeballs. I've given you the wake-up call. Now listen to my instruction.
Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. That's a form of of that extreme exaggeration. You know, he didn't just say, you know, wash yourselves, be good. He said, learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. So this is what he is encouraging us to do. And Isaiah is speaking not only to the children of Israel as the Assyrians were approaching, but he's also speaking to us today. We don't have Assyrians in our lives, but the the concept is, is still there. God wants us to turn to him, to turn away from the ways of the world. And as we read Isaiah, that's the message that we're reading. So with that, I trust you will have fun in Isaiah the prophet. And next week, I think I'll probably spend a little bit of time doing a little more with Isaiah, because Isaiah not only has the stick, he also has the carrot, and dangles the carrot in front of us, you know, for for wonderful future things. So next week, we'll, we'll take a look at Isaiah and his use of the carrot, which is the hope of something future, and we'll get into future prophecy as well. And I trust you will enjoy that. I will see you next week.